This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, starting with Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the creatures, or all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 of Genesis. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, if you would join with me in prayer once more. Father, it is the prayer of our heart that our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions would all testify plainly to the simple truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, help us to live in that reality. This is not a hope. This is not a fantasy. This is the reality of the world. Our Lord is enthroned on high. Father, help us this morning as we look to your word, as we interact with things that are going on in society around us. Help us to see everything through a biblical lens. Teach us to have a Christian worldview. Make us faithful. Prepare us beforehand how we will act, what we will say, that we might be steadfast as the pressure comes and the trials find their way to us. Father, build us up in Christ for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to take a break from our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and within that, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be doing something that we haven't done here at Legacy before. Yet it is something that I think is good and necessary as things of importance develop in the world around us. Now, if you know me very well, you know I'm very leery of topical preaching. Actually, it's one of the defining markers of this church is a commitment to exegetical preaching, to the systematic going through of the word of God, where we don't get to choose what we teach on, but God's word guides us week by week. 
Even so, there is a time when it is necessary, and if it is necessary, it is therefore appropriate to address a particular issue, answer a particular question, or provide a biblical framework by which to judge an important matter. And that is what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. We have no doubt heard that politics has no place in the church. Definitely no place from the pulpit of the church. You may even believe that it is illegal, immoral, or foolish for a minister of God to speak about such things. In conservative Bible-believing churches have believed that lie for far too long. For far too long, God's people have listened when they have been told to stay in their lane. They have submitted to the increasingly diminished role within society that they have been asked to play. So much so that the church in most Western cultures has become powerless and irrelevant in society. Well, the church has no role to play in politics, you say? Preachers need to leave this stuff alone? Well, let me ask you, if the people of God are not taught how to think about political issues from a Christian worldview, from their pastors behind the pulpits, then exactly where do you think they will learn it? Simple answer is they won't. They don't. They haven't for a very long time in the majority of the churches in this country and others like it. We tout our religious freedom, even as we have let the world fool us into acting as though that freedom and that religion only applies to the smallest areas of our lives. Well, let me ask you another question. What are politics? Just what part of our lives and our society does that involve? Better yet, just try and tell me what areas of our lives and our society have not been made political. There is no isolated arena just pertaining to some benign public policy or democratic decision-making that has no bearing on the moral and religious lives of this nation's people. Politics and the desire of the state to influence and to dominate every aspect of our lives knows no bounds. As the state grows, so does the umbrella under which things can rightly be called political. Everything has become political. How could the church stay out of politics even if she tried? Every attempt to, adduce, to do so has simply whittled away at the church's influence as she has ceded step after step, mile after mile. If you want to know where that ends, then simply look at the church down the road and look at every other church around the world that has learned to take its marching orders from the state. They have become mere puppets repeating the messages and the morals deemed helpful and acceptable by the state and by the cultural elites. No, the church cannot avoid politics, nor should she try. The people of God must be taught how to live within society, how to be good citizens, how to know what it means to have proper patriotism, to learn what kind of policy and what kind of 
candidates we should be championing and voting for, how to raise our children in this land. The church needs to be taught all of how to do all of those things as Christians. Long ago, for some reason, churches decided that it was the role of the state to teach us what it means to be good citizens and to be good members of society. The people of God long ago in the West stopped trying to influence the society and the state. And now that state, oversized and overfed, is increasingly claiming dominion over the narrow lane that it had this far allowed the church to operate in. So what is the issue that has sparked this break from our normal teaching to delve into the political? Well, just the latest in the long line of Western governmental overreach. This time, one that happened just to our neighbors, just to the north in Canada. This past week, a bill recently unanimously passed to the Canadian legislator went into effect as law. It provides the state the ability to prosecute any action that would seek to challenge or seek to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. The bill, designated C-4, has the direct claim that it's, that it's banning conversion therapy, that it's making conversion therapy illegal, yet the language is so broad that it has the ability to make any teaching or any counsel that seeks to uphold a biblical understanding of human identity and sexuality illegal. You may be aware that a number of U.S. states have long had laws banning professionals from the practice of conversion therapy. Yet this law in Canada that has passed and now is in, in force has a much broader scope and reach. It's the kind of victory that the liberals in the U.S. have been longing to be able to win. So, of course, the marketing around this law is centered around conversion therapy Yet that controversial practice, and let's be honest, it is a controversial practice that has had abuses associated with it in the past. Labeling a conversion therapy is simply a red herring to leave a bad taste in the mouth, to make this bill seem necessary, to make it seem reasonable by association. There have been real concerns related to attempts to try to force somebody to stop being gay, to try and use psychological or, or physical constraints and conditioning in order to break a habit, to break an orientation that only can be defeated by the power of the gospel. There is a matter in that practice of causing pain without the real hope of benefit. But the issue here, the issue with, that we have with this law passed in Canada is different. They use that lo loaded term to create a straw man, to build this argument that's really easy then to beat down and defeat. But what this law and what efforts like it are doing in Western countries around the world is conditioning people to see any attempt to steer somebody away from homosexual, homosexual behavior or to steer somebody away from gender confusion to see that as actual harm and abuse. They are using something that people have already been conditioned to see as harmful to convince us that preaching or urging conformity to monogamous heterosexuality and biological gender is dangerous. 
That is, they are seeking to call any, any call, any longing, any desire, any pull to get people back to biblical sexuality and identity as harmful. And if harmful, then it is bad. If bad, it's wrong. It's unacceptable. It's intolerable. Ultimately, to be something that should be stamped out and banished from society. Of course, we need to be aware that's a pretty common tactic. It's a pretty common tactic to find something that people are already conditioned to reject as harmful or evil and then use it to force broad, sweeping changes that are only related on some minor surface level. One pastor in Canada has reported the new law there has language broad enough that Christians who would seek biblical truth speak biblical truth into the lives of those in bondage to sexual sins like homosexuality and transgenderism, even a mother or father who offers their children freedom from sexual sin through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ could be threatened with five years in jail. Another pastor in Canada reported that in Canada, the teachings of both, both basic biology and the Bible are now myths according to the preamble of Bill C-4. This isn't about protecting people from harm. It's about the state playing the role of God. Now, we have seen it. You just simply turn on the TV to any news channel, you'll realize that science has been divorced from facts and reality. Now, truths that were once known to be biological realities in accordance with the word of God are now simply relegated to mythology along the religion that the state has long undermined and worked to rob of its influence and public confidence. Well, in response to this bill that passed and is now in effect in Canada, hundreds of pastors across Canada have committed to stand firm in defiance, to be able to stand and risk prosecution by preaching today on biblical sexuality in their churches. One Canadian pastor said, we will be doing so illegally, declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church, and that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpits. And in solidarity with our brothers and sisters to the north, pastors across the U.S. are also dedicating this morning, this day, to preach on this important issue so, beloved, this morning we join with faithful churches across this continent and publicly declare that Jesus Christ alone is Lord over his church. He alone is Lord over our lives. He alone is Lord over this community, this nation, this world. That Jesus Christ created us, and he alone has the authority to define us and to give us purpose. He is Lord over all. All men owe him their allegiance and their worship. Therefore, we call on all men, be they slave or king, to repent and believe. We call on all men to turn from their folly and honor Christ as Lord. This is our, our message to everyone that's here today everyone in this community, for the leaders of this town, this state, and this nation. 
This morning, we are going to look at human sexuality and identity. We will take a look at how the world defines them, and then we will contrast its understanding with the good design of our God. And later on, we will talk about the desire of the worldly system to claim sovereignty over men and nature. And then how recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord can put all of these things into a proper perspective for us. Well, a big part of the bill that passed in Canada, as well as the cultural shift that we are seeing around us as part of the sexual revolution, is centered on how people identify themselves. Specifically, most in question right now is people's identity in regard to gender, yet we have already seen that it can go beyond gender to nationality, to age, even to species. The conversation around how people identify is, fo is focused on what the person wants or what the person wants to be, rather than what they were designed to be. It is focused on how they want others to perceive them and correspondingly treat them rather than on what and who they actually are. To many in, around us, it actually makes sense to say that a man can be pregnant and then chest feed his newborn child. Somehow, there are people that actually think it makes sense that a Caucasian can be, a, ma a man can be born Caucasian and then somehow develop into being a Filipino woman. These are real things that are out there that people are claiming for themselves. And there are people who call themselves serious journalists and thinkers that are touting it as, as courageous, as bold, as being true to themselves. Well, should we be surprised? Should anything surprise us anymore after these governments all around the world have declared the right to change the definition of marriage? after they had the audacity to claim the authority that they could change the definition of marriage to include two men or two women? Well, the assumption behind all of this is at the most basic level, what matters most about a person is their sexual orientation, their sexual desires, and their gender expression. Of course, I doubt there are many that are going to admit that that's what they think is the most important thing about a person. But by their actions, by their words, and by legislation, what other conclusion can we come to? The constant drumbeat coming out of Washington and Hollywood as we must treat a person's desired expression or orientation and identity as definitional. To deny referring to someone by their chosen pronouns or to act as if biology has any role to play in who they are is tantamount to denying their existence. To not accept, encourage, embrace, and celebrate someone as they desire, no matter what that means, is labeled as hateful, abusive, harmful, bigoted. Things that used to be correctly labeled, even in secular psychology textbooks, as disorders, as maladies, confusions, or mental illnesses, are now the all-important and celebrated defining features of being progressive and forward-thinking. 
somehow when harmful cravings or the desire for bodily mutilation are tied to a person's desired image of themselves or it's tied to pursuing what they think will make them happy, our society no longer has the mind or the will to actually see them as sick and to try and help them. Instead, people are incentivized to embrace any and all perversion and distorted view of reality. It has become so popular these days that sometimes it's impossible to tell who really is ill and who just wants attention. It's truly a dangerous age to grow up as a child in this society to try and figure out what kind of person you want to be. Kids are encouraged to explore and to experiment with different gender identities and gender experiences and sexual experiences. God forbid a child show a bit of curiosity or have a little bit of a preference for something that's generally associated with a different gender. His or her parents might rush them immediately to the doctor to begin hormone therapy as they try to receive the accolades among their peers for having a transgender child. Just take a glance sometime at some Hollywood-type tabloids or news program. It is the latest craze for the social elites to have a child who is transgender and is somewhere along the spectrum of transitioning. As a society, we have stopped asking the big questions. We've stopped asking, why am I here? Where do we come from? What is the meaning of life? We have stopped seeking to find our identity in those things that are transcendent. And instead, our society has embraced radical depravity, mental illness, and pure fantasy. Human identity is now so wrapped up in what is lower rather than what is higher. This land has been given over to a depraved mind. See, our society lost its way a long time ago and now has found itself in the very means that will serve to be its ultimate destruction. That is how the world around us has come to understand the identity of man. It's defined by lust and self-delusional fantasy. Of course, the Bible presents a radically different basis on which to center man's understanding of himself. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's look to what was read for us earlier. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We'll read it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, at its most basic level, the Christian worldview states that he who created man gets to define man. That should sound simple, right? It's pretty basic, pretty easy to understand. The one who created us gets to define us. Yet that statement, now officially considered myth, according to the Canadian government, is a radical claim that society cannot tolerate. It denies the autonomy of man and man-made institutions. It denies our so-called right to self-determination. What does the Bible say? God created man. God created man according to his own image, in his own likeness, according to his own character and purpose. God created man for a reason. He designed man to play a specific role in creation. So God's image is the defining characteristic for mankind. It is the central, all-important element of what it means to be a man. It's what separates our race from the rest of creation. It's what separates us from the animals. It's what separates us from the angels. It is the central tenet of what it means to be human. And it is the foundational identity that we were given by our creator. You ask just what are the depths of the depravity of man? I don't know that it can be much more clearly illustrated than to say that we were created with an identity centered in divinity. And rather than embracing our design and purpose as a race, we have chosen instead to define ourselves by our most basic animalistic lusts and the distorted and tortured fantasies that we construct Of course, the rejection of this identity given by God goes all the way back to Adam. Rather than being centered in who God made him to be, Adam instead embraced the desire to be something more. He denied the sufficiency of the miracle of being made in the image of God, and he chose instead to pursue the fantasy of being like God as though he could surpass his God-given station and become equal with God. For this denial of his intended identity and purpose, all the world was cursed. Ever since, mankind has continued to invent new ways to repeat the sin of our first father. We continue to deny our true identity in God's image, and we attempt to reinvent ourselves according to what we desire or to what we fantasize about becoming. Of course, that is not where the story ends. Or we wouldn't be here calling all men to repent of their idolatry and turn to Christ. 
God in Jesus entered into his creation to restore mankind to its design and purpose in the likeness of divinity. Well, that may seem an unusual way of describing the gospel. Yet Christ came so that we might by faith be bound to him, to be found in him, to be made like him. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 49. Paul wrote, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so were all those who were of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are all who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be yet has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Roman 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And just one more right now, 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit's. Of course, there are plenty more passages we could go to. The Christian worldview stands in direct opposition to that of the world regarding the identity of man. We deny that the identity of man is determined by man. We deny that it can be changed by man. We deny that it is centered on the will and the wants of man. We deny that it is centered on the lusts of man. And we foundationally and completely deny that man or man's institutions have any say on the matter. We were created by God and we are defined by his image. That is our identity. And what then matters is whether we embrace God's intended purpose for us and trust in his son and be conformed to the image of his son or if we will instead continue as slaves of our lust and die in our fantasy. Modern man seeks, as we have discussed, to find definition in their perception of themselves, and they also define themselves around their sexual lusts. It's referenced as typically a sexual orientation. Well, I remember a time that we were told that sexual orientation had very little to do with who a person was, that what people did in the privacy of their own homes between consenting adults shouldn't matter to us. It was none of our business. Of course, that was before sexual perversion was normalized, or perhaps how sexual perversion became normalized. Now a person's sexual orientation is seen as central to who they are. It is a part of their core identity. Depending on the source or their day, it is something that is either an unchanging part of who they are, or it's something that is fluid and should be explored and experimented with 
They can't quite seem to make up their minds. Even if you wanted, you could not keep up with the ever-changing and expanding list of possible genders or sexual orientations. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, monogamous, queer, polyamorous, and coming soon to a popular culture near you, pedophilia, or the nice euphemism they're trying to use for it now, a minor attracted person. Like gender, and I'm not even going to try to give a list of all the insanity that follows gender now, there seems to be no shortage of confusion or innovation concerning orientation. In fact, each new gender identity conveniently brings with it the opportunity to invent a new sexual orientation. Beloved, what is celebrated in our society as freedom is in truth slavery. Mankind thinks they are free as they run headlong down the path of destruction, yet they miss the fact that they are made slaves to their lusts and their idolatry of desire and the flesh. You don't have to be very old to look around at the society around us and realize this is not the same society that we were as children, that we were in as children. The rapid pace of this cultural change is staggering. But how did our society get here? Well, it got here in the same way that nations have gotten there before. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in these things that he has made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless. 
ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The world is slaved to lust and fantasy because men suppressed the truth that they had been given. Instead of giving honor to the God in whose image they were created, they created dead and useless gods in their own image. They worshiped themselves rather than the God who gave them life. How does God respond to the suppressing of the knowledge of him, to the turning of the, to the idolatry of self? He gives them over to the lusts of their hearts. He gives them over to dishonoring passions. They become consumed with passions. And God gives them over to a debased mind. They become inventors of evil demanding the celebration of their depravity as they give hearty approval to others who do the same. If that doesn't describe what we see happening around us in Western cultures around the world, I can't imagine what would. We are seeing the devastating effects of God handing a nation over to sin. The devastating effects of the judgment of God for the suppression of truth. But what else would we expect? How else would we expect God to respond to the systematic denial of the creator and the removal of true religion from public life? What else would we expect when nations deny the image of God in mankind and treat his image bearers as a product of chance? or natural selection, or evolution. Call it what you will. Our society has given itself over to the delusion that life has an existence, have no meaning, but are just the result of random chance. That there's no meaning or purpose outside of what the individual or the straight, the state determines. How else would we expect God to respond when nations so devalue the human life made in his image that they murder millions upon millions of unborn children who had the audacity to be conceived by irresponsible, self-worshipping parents? Wicked men demanded gratification of the flesh without consequence, without attachment, without responsibility. And then wicked women demanded the same. Sex became divorced from the procreative dominion mandate given to mankind. And once it served no purpose other than self-gratification, it opened up door after door after door into greater and greater depravity. Are we the first nation to fall into this kind of depravity? No. But what has happened before is happening again. 
and how God has responded before he will respond again. When we look around us and we see what the world believes about human sexuality and the devastating effects of what we can see confirms that this society is grossly out of order. So what was God's design and intention in making man a sexual being? Well, again, let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 2, verses 7 through 8. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted in a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. Jumping down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh in its place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, that word kind of play picture works, ish and isha. The same kind of picture that you're getting in man and woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Well, God in eternity exists in community. We serve a God who is three persons in one God. And that means that God has never been, nor will he ever be, lonely, in need of anyone or anything else to be complete, to be satisfied, and to be content. But when God made Adam, Adam was alone. He was not complete. He was not satisfied or content. That God said that it was not good that the man was alone. And in all of creation, there was not found anyone, anything that was suitable for him. There was no one to provide him the kind of community and union that he was created for. So God made woman. And what does God say about the union between the man and the woman? The two shall become one flesh. The two shall be united in permanent union. A union that is consummated by, pictured in, and celebrated through sexual union. The gift of the sexual union in marriage was how the race of men would flourish. And as their numbers grew, they would exercise dominion over all of creation. Any 
distortion of God's purpose in the sexual union of man and wife diminishes God's perfect and good gift. This union unites two people in a permanent covenantal bond. It is a gift for the joy and intimacy that makes us long for and will only be surpassed by the perfect joy and of our union with our God in paradise. This union is the means of raising up new generations that will be brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. These new generations that will allow us to take dominion over the whole earth under the rule of our God. This union is all of these things. Yet our society systematically abandoned each of these purposes in the sexual union. First, it worked to remove procreation as a natural possibility of the sexual union. Yes, sex is about more than just procreation. But for a long season among a married couple... It is also about the possibility of procreation. Once you were able to divorce procreation from sex, so was the need to keep sex between a husband and a wife, or even between a man and a woman. Loving and lasting union no longer preceded physical intimacy. And at that point, there was nothing to hold back anything and everything that indulged the ever-growing and mutating passions of men. Running through this entire process of perverting and distorting God's design for his image bearers is man's claim of sovereignty over his identity, over his purpose, and over truth and morality. Time after time, men have claimed authority to rewrite reality. Often they do this as individuals, but it has the greatest effect on society when it is done by the state. Depending on who is in power or who has mass support among the people, the attempts to rewrite reality can come from the tyranny of the minority or the tyranny of the masses. Either way, justification is made time after time to give human institutions the ability to determine what will be seen as normal, what will be seen as right, what will be acceptable, and then also what must be suppressed and punished. Every time the state makes the law that uh, allowing something that God has forbidden or forbidding something that God has commanded, they make a claim of sovereignty. They act as though they are the final and ultimate authority. Every time they change definitions or call Bible-established truths myths, they make a claim of sovereignty, and they set themselves up as God. One cannot study world history without seeing this process unfold time after time in tyrannical governments. There are shelves of books relaying some sort of dystopian future that illustrate the great lengths that corrupt leaders will go to in order to establish and maintain power and authority over the people. 
Of course, many of these works now read as though they were prophecy as we see these things being done right before our eyes in nation after nation. All these changes that only a few years ago we would have thought were impossible. Even though Adam's first attempt to be made as God resulted in the curse of all of creation, mankind remains committed to the efforts to be as God on this earth. Well, what must the Christian's response be to the claim of sovereignty of the state? Our most basic confession has not changed from that of the early church. We boldly proclaim and live in light of the reality that Jesus is Lord. Christ is King. Our God reigns. Jesus as Lord is the single great claim of the Christian. That reality permeates into every area of our lives, into every area of society, into every area of creation. Jesus sent his disciples out to change the world because all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. The world exists because of Christ and for Christ. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. We know that because of the victory he won on earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even in the face of the growing darkness and wicked rule of men, Jesus Christ is King. He is right now at the right hand of the Father, seated in glory. Even now, every enemy is being made as a footstool underneath his feet. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That, beloved, is our response to the overreach and tyranny of the ungodly, whether it's in this land or any other. Jesus Christ, not Caesar, nor any governor, prime minister, president, or king of this earth, is Lord. He alone is sovereign. Where God has spoken, no man can override. What God has defined, no man can alter. That is why pastors in Canada this morning can stand in defiance, risking fine and arrest, many of whom have already been arrested and spent time in jail because they refused to listen to the state and close the doors so the people of God could not come together. They stood bold and said, no, we will gather to worship our God as he has commanded us. Many of them have already faced jail time and might again. Jesus, not Trudeau, nor his government, is Lord. 
Jesus, not Biden, or any political party or government agency is Lord. We will obey Christ. We will proclaim his truth. And we will call all men, command all men to turn from their sin and to do the same. Father, help us. Help us to stand strong. Father, we pray that you would give strength to your people, that you would have men behind pulpits and churches across this continent stand boldly, daring the state to use its power to try and stop the power of the gospel. As we know, the gates of hell cannot stand against the power of the gospel. So, Father, we pray for boldness. We pray that your spirit would move powerfully. That as tyranny sticks its fingers into more and more areas of our lives, that seeks to put a chokehold on the gospel, that your people would be emboldened, impassioned to speak the name of Christ, to live lives that confirm their message. Father, we ask these things in your Son's name and for your glory. Amen. Well, as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, let us remember the cost of being restored image bearers to God. Let us remember how far as a race that we fell in our desire to be as God. The cost of being reconciled once more to our creator. And beloved, we confidently approach the table of our Lord because in his mercy and in his grace, he did not leave us in the broken and confused state in which we were found. He determined that we would be identified in Christ, that we would become the bride of Christ, that his death would be our death, that his life would be our life. So if by faith you cling to Christ and the testimony of your life is consistently that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, then I invite you to come and receive that your faith might be strengthened and your soul might be encouraged. So come and receive, and then in just a moment we will partake together. Father, as we approach your table... We do so confessing that it is only by the shed blood and broken body of your son that we can stand before you. Knowing that we did everything we could to corrupt your image within us. Yet you graciously sent your son and are conforming us to him. Father, may this symbol, this symbol that you have given us in remembrance 
have an encouraging effect on our souls to strengthen our faith and to bring us joy in the finished work of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given it, given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also we took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And continue, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That for now and until the end of the age, we do proclaim the death of Christ because it is what was needed for the forgiveness of sins. But there is a day coming when the the message of the death of Christ is not going to be what's most on our lips, but it'll be the presence and the righteousness and the glory of Christ as we get to feast with him in the kingdom. Father, we'd give you praise and glory and honor. We are yours. Use us as you will. Receive glory and honor and praise from our lips. May we be a satisfying aroma before you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.